Hello, I am Matthew Hurst, the worship minister of First Baptist Church, Watauga, and we want to simply say thank you for listening to these messages. We'd like to invite you on Sunday morning at 1045 to join us in worship of God and to hear from His Word. Our mission here at FBC Watauga is to exalt the Savior equip the saints, and to evangelize the lost one person at a time. So I pray as you listen to these messages that you would be encouraged and equipped as you listen to the word of the Lord today. Thank you, Brad, for joining us and leading us today. As I came in this morning and I saw Brad up on stage by himself, I knew that was going to be the case, that Matthew had uh, wanted to simplify things as Brad came to lead us. It it struck me that, uh, especially during the first worship service, just that question, how much do we need to bring praise and worship to our Lord? I love our worship band, and Matthew's done an incredible job growing it. But if, what if we didn't have a guitar or a piano? What if we didn't even have a worship leader to, to lead a song? No air conditioning. Could we come in here with just us and Jesus? and praise his name. Would his word and his spirit be enough? I think so. Just this week I was, I'm on a church revitalization Facebook page and where pastors kind of ask questions and they, they, they uh, you know, try to help each other deal with issues and they're dealing with in their churches and it, usually it's pretty deep spiritual stuff. This week's a pastor asked a question on there that caught my attention and I was reminded of it this morning. He, he asked, uh, does anybody on here uh, know a good uh, uh, solution or recipe for uh, sterilizing smoke machines? <laughs> and I thought, <laughs> on the church revitalization page, our concern was our smoke machines, getting them working right and getting them sterilized. I'm not sure we need smoke machines to be able to come into a place and worship the Lord our God. Amen. They're not bad. There's no evil in a smoke machine or a fog machine, but I don't think that we have to have that uh, to, to, to worship the Lord. And I appreciate the simple uh, acoustic set this morning. Before we get uh, into the worship time, I want to take some time for us to pray. I got a phone call, actually a text originally, then a phone call on early Friday morning. One of our police sergeants, uh, Sergeant Ben Davis, uh, is 41 years old, had a stroke while he was on shift on uh, Friday morning. He's married, has a seven-year-old and a two-year-old, and right now he's in ICU. He doesn't have any function of the left side of his body. His uh, left arm, his left leg aren't working. His cognitive function's great. He's in great spirits. He has a wonderful family around him. But I want us as a church family. He is, uh, uh, he's been serving at Watauga PD for about 12, 13 years, and uh, just a really super guy, godly guy. And I want us as a church to be in prayer for him. And, and I'd ask you, uh, in your personal time, uh, to be in prayer for him. But let's pray for him right now before we continue. Father, as we come to this place today, we, we recognize that there's many in our church family who are hurting. If, uh, Lord, I especially, just right now, want to lift up uh, Sergeant Davis and his family. Lord, I thank you for the way that he has served our community faithfully. I thank you for his kind spirit, his hard work, his dedication to serving uh, Watauga. Lord, I pray that I pray that you'd bring healing to his body, that you'd bring complete healing so that he would uh, be able to get, get full use of, of his, uh, both sides of his body, his arms, his legs, and be back to serving you. 
in uh, the job that he loves and that we need him out there doing. Lord, I pray for his spirits as he goes through whatever rehab and uh, that he's going to have to go through. I pray that your, your spirit would be with him and that it would strengthen him and encourage him and empower him and uh, carry him uh, through whatever difficult times may come and be with his wife and kids. Let your spirit give them assurance and courage and, and bless them during this difficult time. Thank you, Lord, that you are a God who loves us and cares about people. And you're a God who heals. And we'll see that again this morning in your word. Now, Lord, we lift up this man in particular today and ask that you be with him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to approach my sermon out of order a little bit today. We're in John chapter 5, verses 1 through 16. There's a great story of the third sign that Jesus performed. Jesus performs another healing of a, of a man. And, uh, and yet this story also has a part of this, a part of the story is Jesus's discussion on the Sabbath. And so uh, we're going to deal with that fifth point of a five point sermon first. We're going to look at uh, this issue of the Sabbath day and, and how it applies and, and then kind of back up and walk through the rest of the story. But go ahead and read the text with me and then we'll, uh, we'll begin to take a look at it. The scripture says, beginning in John chapter 5 verse 1, after this a Jewish festival took place and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. By the sheep gate in Jerusalem there was a pool called Bethesda in Aramaic, which had five colonnades. Within these lay a large number of the disabled, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man who was there had been disabled for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and realized he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to get well? Sir, the disabled man answered, I, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, someone gets up down, goes down ahead of me. Get up, Jesus told him. Pick up your mat and walk. Instantly, the man got well, picked up his mat, and started to walk. Now that day was the Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, This is the Sabbath. The law prohibits you from picking up your mat. He replied, The man who made me well told me, Pick up my, your mat and walk. Who is this man who told you, pick up your mat and walk, they said. But the man who was healed didn't know who it was because Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. After this, Jesus found him in the temple. And he said to him, see, you're well. Do not sin anymore so that something worse doesn't happen to you. The man went and reported to the Jews that this was, the, it was Jesus who had made him well. Therefore, the Jews began persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath day. I want to deal, as I said, with that last part first because ultimately this passage is all about Jesus putting people first. Jesus cared about the sick, the lame, the broken. He cared about those who had been cast out by the leadership, by the religious people, by the wealthy people, and, and he because of that, he put people first. And what we're going to see here is that Jesus consistently puts people before their religion. Now, I want you to hear this. Jesus is not putting people ahead of what the Father has told him to do. 
Jesus is not saying that, that God's decrees, God's ordinances are not important, but Jesus is saying that people are more important than your rules and regulations. And, and he consistently does it. We're going to see that more and more throughout the Gospel of John. They're going to pick up rocks and try to stone him when he does it. And we see it all throughout uh, the New Testament. In fact, I want to read a passage to you because uh, this is a, one of the best illustrations of it where it kind of gets fleshed out a little bit more in Luke chapter 13, verse 10. And uh, if you have it, you can read along with me, but you may know the story. The scripture says he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and a woman was there who had been disabled by a spirit for over 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called out to her, Woman, you are free of your disability. He laid his, his hands on her, and instantly she was restored and began to glorify God. But the leader of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, responded by telling the crowd, there are six days when work should be done. Therefore, come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. But the Lord answered him and said, hypocrites, doesn't each one of you untie his ox or donkey from the feeding trough on the Sabbath and lead it to water? Satan has bound has bound this woman, a daughter of Abraham, for 18 years, shouldn't she be untied from this bondage on the Sabbath day? When he had said these things, all of his adversaries were humiliated, but the crowd was rejoicing over the glorious things he was doing. There's a couple things that I want you to note about this passage. First and foremost, Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. He's going to tell us in another place that, that the Sabbath day was created for man, not man for the Sabbath. God created the Sabbath day for us, I, I believe for several reasons. One, so that we would know how important it was to rest. The, 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 another, so that on that regular schedule, we would have that, that reminder of that seven-day schedule. We'd be reminded of a need to come worship before him, to, to to stop everything else that we're doing and focus on him. But what ends up happening in, in our world, our culture, we tend to want to make those rules and regulations, we want to make our rules and regulations, our religion, so important that it becomes more important than people. And that's why Jesus can consistently dealt with this issue of the Sabbath in his time. I, one of the church members in the first service reminded me of Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 2 where Deuteronomy specifically says when God's given the, the, the law to Moses he says make sure that you don't add anything to this or take anything away from it so that people will obey my law and what do the Jews do they add six seven hundred rules and regulations to the law it reminds me of when I when I was saved I was a junior high young uh, young man and had accepted Christ as my Savior at a, at a revival and I was so excited about what God was doing in my life I went to school the next day and I was telling people about it and the first thing that I began to get was people say oh you were saved at a Baptist church well, you can't go to the school dance anymore and you can't play cards on Sunday anymore and, and, and a few more and I'm looking at them going what are y'all talking about I don't where's that in the Bible you know, so I go home and ask mama about the dance. She goes, well, the issue is not that the Bible says you can't dance. The issue is other things that go on at those dances that you ought not be involved in. So what we, we did was we put all kinds of additional rules and regulations out there to try to help people obey God's rules to the extent that our rules and our regulations become more important than people than a relationship with God.
Jesus specifically put on display that he cared more about people than he did about their petty religious rules. And I believe that if he was to step into our churches today, he'd say the exact same thing. Now, this first major, this first point, it's not hard for us. Now, I'll be real honest with you. I struggled for, with the Sabbath issue, especially once I became a full-time pastor. Because I'm told you're not supposed to work on Sunday. Well, that, you know, especially the, the first church, I was teaching Sunday school and preaching two sermons on Sunday. It was the, the, the most busiest day of the week for me. Why am I not supposed to work? And then our family wanted to go to the restaurant. Well, you shouldn't go to the restaurant because you shouldn't make those, those people, those waiters and waitresses cook on Sunday because you're encouraging them to break the Sabbath. Well, if I take my wife home and she's got to feed me and five or four kids, then I'm encouraging her to work on Sunday. So she's breaking the Sabbath. I, I think that we get so caught up in the rules and regulations, we miss the spirit behind them. And that's what we have to be careful about. What, why did God put that in place? Well, I joked with Brad about this when I got here this morning. I said, you know, Brad, normally when I get here in the mornings before the service, I like to walk up on stage and plant a big kiss on somebody up on stage. I said, and you're the only one on stage this morning. My wife's not here. Well, he wasn't really excited about that. He's, and I said, well, it's in Scripture, 1 Thessalonians 5, 26. It says, greet the brothers with a holy kiss. Greet the brothers and sisters in the CSB. We don't do that, do we? Because we understand that, that what Paul is communicating there is a cultural issue. When I was in South Asia, people would come up to me and they would greet me with that fake kiss on both sides. You know what I'm talking about? That was their greeting. Here in Texas, up until March, we would greet each other with a handshake and a big hug. Uh, COVID's going to put the kibosh on that right now. So, you know, our culture is an elbow bump or fist bump or something like that. Ultimately, it's a, what I want you to hear here more than anything else, because this leads into the rest of the message. For Jesus, it's about people. Jesus cared more about that man who was laying there who had been broken and paralyzed for 38 years. He cared more about that woman in Luke 13 who was bent over and, and had this illness for 18 years. He cared more about them than he did about their rule about the Sabbath, their religious observance of the Sabbath. Jesus cared about people. And we see that in chapter 5, verse 1 and 2 then. Because Jesus comes down to Jerusalem for a festival. And as he's coming to Jerusalem, I want you to notice the first place he goes. Scripture doesn't say he goes to the temple first. It doesn't say he went to a palace or to a religious leader's home or even to a friend's house. Look at where he went. By the Sheep Gate in Jerusalem, there's a pool called Bethesda in Aramaic. It has five colonnades. Within those, these lay a large number of the disabled, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. There's two issues here for Jesus. First of all, he goes to the Sheep Gate. The Sheep Gate is a place where the religious people, those who are especially at the time of a festival, a celebration, a religious ceremonial time, they would not be found anywhere near the sheep gate because that's where the sheep were and the shepherds were and they're unclean. I ran across this a few weeks ago in a study on Luke chapter 15. 
uh, where Jesus is, is talking about the, the shepherd who went after the one lost sheep. And in that passage, it says that the religious leaders were upset with him because he was hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. And in the NIV, the scripture put the word sinners in quotes, like sinners. And so somebody asked me that question. That's what drove me to study. Why did it put the word sinners in quotes? So I go look at the, the original language and the, the Greek, and the Greek just uses the word sinners there. But the reason that the interpreters put it in quotes was because the people that Jesus was hanging out with were not any people who were committing egregious sins at that point. It wasn't talk about him hanging out with, with the, the, the prostitutes or, or anything like that. He was hanging out with, with those who were ceremonially unclean, like shepherds and tanners and butchers and guys like that. And they were known as sinners because they were unclean. Well, here Jesus is. He heads to Jerusalem for the festival, and the first place he goes is where the shepherds are hanging out. Well, certainly the religious leaders are going to be upset about that. You, you're ceremonially unclean. Now you're hanging out with sinners and you're, you got their sin all over you. And not only that, but this is a place in these five colonnades where the paralyzed, the blind, and the lame were hanging out. And certainly in their theology, they believed that those people were all sinners. And the reason that they were lame or blind was because they had sinned in some horrible way. And so here Jesus goes straight to where the dirty people are, straight to where the hurting people are. Jesus, when he came to town for this incredible time of festive worship, the first place he went was to those who needed him most. Now, that's, that begs a tough question for us. Do we love people the way Jesus loves people? In fact, the question might even be better asked, do we love the people who Jesus loved? <laughs> it seemed that Jesus' heart went straight for the broken, straight for the outcast, straight for the dirty, straight for the poor, straight for those who needed him most. Of course, the religious people didn't like it. I'm reminded of, a, of the men in our church who uh, uh, many of you knew before he went home to be with the Lord, uh, Gary Johnson. When God began to get a hold of his life, began to move in his life, he had a burning desire to go down to Lancaster and hang out with the homeless and serve down there to go into the tent cities. He felt called to work in the chaplaincy, and Dennis Stratton and I were working as Watauga Police Chaplain. He wanted to know how he could get connected, serving the chaplaincy. So it didn't work out for him right away to get certified as a police chaplain down in Fort Worth, so he got certified as a hospice chaplain. I want you to think about that. He spent a couple days a week hanging out with those in the last moments of their life before they died. There's no harder place to minister than places like that. Why did he go there? Because he went to the people whom Jesus loved that needed him most. When we have a heart for Jesus, we're going to have a heart for the people whom Jesus loves. And certainly Jesus got marked by it. The religious leaders, the powerful, the, the middle class and upper class of his day looked down on him because of it. But Jesus chose to go to those who needed him most. What about us? Third, then, is this question that Jesus asked 
the, the man who was lame. And this is, I think this is the heart of the sermon. This is the reason that I titled the message this way. He sees this guy who's been disabled for 38 years, and he asks him this question, do you want to get well? Now, that almost seems like a dumb question, doesn't it? The guy's hanging out there by the pool at Bethesda where they thought that there was some healing power in the water. We'll talk a little bit more about that here in a moment. Jesus asked the man, do you want to get well? That, That not only is not a dumb question, that's a very valid question. Because I have found in ministry, in fact, sometimes in all honesty, where I have to ask myself these tough questions... Do you really want to get well? Because some people don't want to get well. Some people, first and foremost, they're afraid of change. If if he heals me and I get up, my life is going to change. All this guy's known for 38 years is begging. And he's got a routine. He knows how it's going to go down. And we can look at that and say, that's a miserable life. But that's the only life he's known for 38 years Does he want to change? I think some people would actually say, no, I'm afraid of change. And so I don't want to get well because that means that my life will change. I think that second, there's some people that don't want to get well because we long for the attention. You've seen people like this. There's always drama going on. And the drama always points back to them. And they, they, we don't want to get well because we like the attention. I'll be real, I'm going to be real honest here because I, I've only spent one, I, I really didn't even get to spend the whole day in the hospital. Yeah, y'all know a couple years ago, I'd gotten, uh, begin to have a lot of pain. It took me a couple days to finally submit and go to the emergency room. I go and my appendix was inflamed, about to burst. And, they, and the doctor came in and said, we got to take it out. We need to take it out as soon as we can. We'll take it out today. I thought, I've never spent the night in the hospital. I've spent there with Katie, but it, she was the center of attention. You see where I'm going with this? They gave me that, that morphine, and man, it felt good. <laughs> I had some deacons come. As Susan said, I, I, you know, I had all kinds of things that I told them. I don't know what all I said, but I was feeling good. Apparently, I was very talkative while I was there in bed. People would ask me, hey, I'm doing great. And I honestly was looking forward to just being the center of attention and being there that night. I had to have my appendix taken out anyway. Why not spend the night and enjoy it? Have somebody bringing me food. You know, people sending me flowers, you know, and cards, that kind of stuff. And gum, they took my appendix out at about uh, 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock that afternoon. They kicked me out of the place before the sun was down. Yeah, I think that, that we're in a day and age where it's not going to be long. And, and when you're having a surgery like that, you're having an appendix out or tonsil out or something like that, they're going to ask you just to get in the back of your minivan. You're going to back up. They're going to do surgery on you and then say, he's done, go, let you go. I didn't even get flowers. You realize that the pastor went in, had surgery, and didn't even get flowers. If they would have just, if they would have kept, thanks, Kirby. If they'd have kept me one more night, I'd have got a little bit more attention. I say that jokingly, but there's times when we don't want to get well because we're the center of attention. And it may be physical sickness or it may be spiritual sickness or maybe something going on in our life, but we like the attention that we're getting. Third, if we're well, there's going to be more that's expected of us 
than if we've got some disability. If we're disabled, people don't expect a whole lot. But if we get well, there's going to be some expectations that come with that. Here's another story on me. When I was a kid, I remember, I don't know how many times, but countless times, we'd come home. I'd fall asleep late at night. Dad, that mom and dad would be out playing dominoes or, you know, with their volunteer fire department friends. And they'd put us in the back of the car. We'd go to sleep on the drive home. We'd get home. I'd wake up. But I'd pretend like I was still asleep. Because if dad knew I was awake, he'd make me get up in the house. If he thought I was still asleep, he'd pick me up and carry me. And I liked that attention. I liked to have dad carry me in and lay me down in bed and tuck me in bed. So I'd, I'd play possum, you know, I'd just, I'd peek out and then dad come get me. I'd just close my eyes. I'd like I was asleep the whole time. I, I don't imagine anybody else ever done that. But why do we do that? Because if he knew I was awake, there'd be some other expectations that came. I could carry myself and my own stuff in the house. Sometimes we don't want to get well because more is expected of us if we're well. Fourth, some of us like our sin more than we do getting well. Some of us like staying in the circumstances we're in, whether it be sin or, or whatever, uh, spiritual or, or emotional turmoil, we would rather stay there than get well. And I was serving at, well, when I was still going to Howard Payne, and right after Howard Payne, I was uh, working in, a, in an office environment, and the uh, friend of mine who was up in his 50s uh, had a really bad chain smoking habit, and he was beginning to have some lung issues, and I think some emphysema, and, uh, he came to the office and his wife was there and she said, how'd your doctor appointment go? And he said, uh, well, doctor told me if I don't quit smoking, I'm going to die in six months. And uh, she said, well, what are you going to do? She goes, he said, well, I'm not going to quit. He don't know what he's talking about. And five months later, I preached his funeral. He died of lung disease. He liked that cigarette more than his health went to visit a lady who had just gotten out of the hospital. One of my church members, when I was at, at May, she'd just gotten out of the hospital, and she was so mad because they hadn't let her smoke a cigarette the entire time she was in the hospital, that she asked the deacon's wife who picked her up if she'd stop at the convenience store at the end of the hospital, where the hospital road came out to a certain way, stop there so she could buy a cigarette, so she did. So I went to visit her the next day, and she told me, she said, I don't know what it is in this house. There's something I'm allergic to here. She says, because I go into the hospital, and I'm, I, after a couple days, I'm doing a whole lot better. And as soon as I come home, I start coughing again, and I start, can't breathe. And, and I said, well, didn't you have uh, Lillian stop and let you pick up cigarettes on the way home? And you, <laughs> I said, do you think it could be the cigarettes? Oh, no, 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 couldn't be that. And she took her cigarette out of the ashtray and, you know, took a puff on it. Sometimes... We like what's hurting us more than we want to be healthy. Countless times I've counseled with people who are having marriage problems. And they didn't want to deal with the issue that they had to get healthy. It was whatever, maybe it was the pornography that they were caught up in was more important to them than their family and their marriage relationship. Or maybe it was the addiction that they had to alcohol was more important than their marriage and their family relationship. 
And so they refuse to let go of the sin to get healthy. All of that to say, that question is not only valid, that, a question, that question applies to every single one of us. Because there's things in our lives that, some, that we don't want to give up to become the person, the man or woman of God that he wants us to be. And so the question is, do you want to be well? Do you want to be spiritually healthy? Do you want to be emotionally healthy? Do you want to be physically healthy? Do you want your marriage to be healthy? If so, care enough about it to stop what you've been doing. And then fourth, or fifth here, this is the last one, and this is going to bleed into our next point. Uh, sometimes we, we can't achieve health because we're too busy blaming everybody else for our problems. This man, Jesus, asked him, do you want to be healthy? He doesn't even give Jesus a straight answer. He doesn't say, yes, I want to be healthy, or no, I don't want to be healthy. I like it where I am. I don't want to change. He doesn't even answer him straight. He looks at Jesus and he says, sir, I don't have anybody to put me in the water when it's stirred up. But while I'm coming, someone goes down ahead of me. Now, the backstory to this is if you have a King James Version or one of the... Uh, 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 even the CSB is going to have a note to this. There is a, about a, a verse and a half that appears in the King James that is not in the newer versions. There's a reason for that. When the King James was translated, it didn't have, they didn't have access to a lot of the, the early Greek manuscripts that we have now. And in that, that passage, uh, was, there was an addition that ended up in the King James in that English version that said that an angel used to come down and stir the waters, and when the waters were stirred, the first person that was in would be healed. That was a myth. It was a, it was a Jewish mythology or a belief that was not true. And that's why it wasn't in the original text. It wasn't in the Gospel of John when John wrote it. We can see that from the early manuscripts. So the later editions have taken it. But there was this idea that the first person who got in the water could be healed. And so that's this man's complaint. He goes, well, nobody will help me. Nobody will put me in the water. Nobody will carry me over there. And so what he wants to do is he wants to shift the blame. See, the, the, the power to be healed is not in that water. The power to be healed is in God. But his problem was he wanted to blame others for the reason that he was in the position he's in. How often do we struggle with that same issue? Who's, whose fault is it that, that, I'm, that I'm acting like this? Well, it's because my parents didn't treat me right when I was growing up. Or, or, you know, I was abused, or I was misused, or, or I didn't get everything that I should have gotten when I was a child. Good grief, you're 50 years old. If you're a 50-year-old man, your mama ought not be taking care of you, okay? There comes a point where you've got to grow up and take responsibility for yourself. And quit blaming everybody else for your problems. But how often do we want to blame someone else? Well, my wife just wasn't treating me fair. That's why I did so-and-so. Bull! You, if you sin, you chose that. It's not your mama's fault. It's not your great uncle's fault. It's not your daddy's fault. If you're an adult and you've chosen to sin against God, it's your fault. You don't blame everybody else for your circumstances and your problems. You, you make a decision that you're going to go to God and you're going to find a, find a way to get healed. This man was blaming everybody else for his issues. But see, sometimes that's more comfortable. If I say, okay, I'm ready to get healed, then I have to quit blaming other people. 
And he didn't want to do that initially. You got to take responsibility for yourself. So then we get into the, it's actually my favorite part of the, well, he, he misjudged God. He misjudged God's grace here is the way that I put it in the message because he had this same Jewish misunderstanding, this myth in his head that there was somehow healing power in the pool. It was a mystical thing that at once a year, there's a lot of theories about that. Some think that at a certain time of year during certain floods, the water would, would be stirred in that well because there was pressure from underneath. Others believe that there, there was a time where there was a, a, a gases that had gotten in the water that would come up through that well and it would bubble up and it looked like it was stirred. And so their, their idea was an angel stirred it. The first person that jumps in can be healed. Let me tell you, folks, there's only one place that life comes from, that healing comes from, and that's from God himself. He is the great healer. There's no mantra that you can say. There's no certain set of rules and regulations. You know, there's no uh, uh, abracadabra that you can say that is going to force God to heal you. I, I mentioned this in the first service. I'm going to mention it again. There's a little pet peeve I had, and, and I'm, I'm cautious about it because I understand people's hearts when they say this. I've said it in the past, and some of you say it. You'll put it on Facebook sometimes. You'll say this. You'll say, prayer works. No, it doesn't. And there's a reason I get upset about that because that idea that, that prayer works, that what that says is there's somehow power in my words. There's somehow power in my prayers. And most people that say that don't mean it. But there's an entire theology built around this concept of what's called the word of faith theology that's very popular in a lot of charismatic circles. That somehow there's power in the word. They even go to the extent to say that when you look back at the creation story that Jesus spoke and the sun came into existence. And Jesus spoke, and the earth came to be. And they'll say that the power was in, or God spoke. They'll say that the power was in the spoken word. And so it wasn't necessarily that the power was in God. Power was in his word. That's just not true. There's powers not in our words. Powers in, the God, in God. Power comes from the throne of God, from he himself. He is the glory. He is the majestic one. He is the powerful one. And so there's no mantra. There's no set words. There's nothing that you can say. I used to have a friend. They'd lose their keys and they'd walk around quoting a scripture from Isaiah that whatever's lost shall be found. Whatever's lost shall be found. They would do that long enough that they'd find their keys. They'd say, see, it worked. Well, eventually you're going to find your keys, right? <laughs> it's the last place you put them. It's not the words that you were saying. Folks, power rests in the presence and the throne of God. It, it's not that I can gin something up by praying the right thing. I can communicate with God. And, and through my communication with God, God tells us to bring our prayer requests before him. And I personally have been a part of a, a prayer meeting where we prayed and we asked God to move. And while we were praying, God healed somebody 75 miles away at the moment we were praying. Just like the coincidence we talked about last week in Scripture. But the power was in God. It was not in our words. God could have just as easily chosen not to bring healing to that person. That's why the power gifts in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is so important for us to understand that Paul refers to them as manifestations of the Spirit. It's the power of the Spirit of God who works through a believer, who flows through a believer, that he can actually bring healing. I do not believe for one moment that the, the gift of healing ever becomes resident in the believer. So these guys who walk around and say, well, I'm a healer. Come to the healing service and I'll heal you. Go to the hospital and get to work, buddy. 
There's power in God, and when God chooses to heal, he can use you and he can use me. This guy somehow had this misconception that power was in the water. He eventually understood that the power was in Jesus. Because when he believed Jesus and obeyed Jesus, what happened? He was healed. He didn't have to get in the water. He didn't have to have any. And I love this about Jesus and his healing stories. And this is where we as humans, boy, we get messed up on this. We like to come up with that formula. Jesus healed, every, every time he healed somebody, he did it different. This time, uh, you know, he, he, the, the lady we read about earlier, he, lay, he spoke to her and he laid hands on her. This guy, he just spoke to him. The guy last week, his son was at home. And he's begging Jesus to come to his house. Jesus said, I don't need to come to your house. You go home, your son's been healed. A little bit later in John, Jesus is going to spit in the dirt. And he's going to make a mud, put it on the guy's eyes, go tell him to wash it off. Every time he does it differently. And I think there's a reason behind that. He wants us to know that he has the power to heal. God has the power to heal. Not our words, not a mantra, not some formula. Jesus cared about people and the power to bring healing rests in Jesus, in God, in him alone. It doesn't rest in us. And he also misunderstood that God's grace is not offered on a first come, first serve basis. He had this idea that, oh, I'm not the first one in the pool, so I'm not going to get Once again, you don't have to be first. God's arms are open to all. Christ came for whosoever would believe in his name. God has thrown the gates open wide. Sadly, those gates are narrow and few go through them. God's grace is not offered on a first-come, first-served basis. It's offered to every one of us who would hum. You don't, I've seen people come to faith in Christ. One of the biggest struggles I had was with a five-year-old at our church at May who put his faith in Christ. He knew more and was further along than most of the adults that I dealt with. And then I, I baptized someone who was in the last days of their lives. Is up in their 80s who trusted Christ as their Savior. It's never too early. It's never too late. God doesn't have a set standard, set formula of when you can, you can come to him. But then finally, and this is where I get excited about because I want you to see the orders that Jesus gave this guy and what he did. Verse 8, Jesus says, get up. He gives him an order. Get up. Pick up your mat and walk. The guy could have argued with Jesus, right? Oh, I've been here 38 years. I don't think I can get up. It's going to be too hard. I don't think I can take it. He didn't. Jesus said, get up. And what did he do? He got up. He stood up. When God said, you've been set free from bondage, you, the, the sickness is gone, stand up. The guy stood up putting his faith and trust in the power of the, the words of Jesus Christ. He was healed as he stood up. The power came from the Lord. He put his faith in what the Lord said, and he was healed. The guy could have laid there and argued. He could have said, I don't want to do it. He could have said, it's too hard. He could have said, I've tried that before, and it didn't work. How many times have I heard that as a pastor? Well, there's a whole lot of things that we try in our own strength. But we don't put our faith in the power of God. If you tried it in your own strength, it ain't going to work because you're not strong enough. You don't work. Church doesn't work. God can heal. 
get up. So he did. Then he says, <laughs> pick up your mat. He could have argued with Jesus. Jesus, it's the Sabbath. If I pick up that mat, these religious people, they're going to be all over me. You know that's breaking the rules, Jesus. You know what? At that point, Jesus cared enough for that man. That, that man just, he didn't care about the rules anymore. The, when he got asked about it later, why are you up carrying around your mat? That's breaking the Sabbath. He said, the guy who healed me told me to carry the mat. You want to know something? The guy who heals me tells me to carry the mat. I'm carrying the mat. Right? If the guy who just told me to get up and I've been laying on the ground for 38 years begging, he says, pick up your mat. I'm not going to argue with him. I picked up the mat. I, I can imagine. He, even if he thought about it for a little bit, he goes, dude, I'm standing up. I don't care what the religious people say. I'm getting that mat. Because I don't know what would have happened. What if he was disobedient? What if he refused to pick up the mat? Jesus gives him a warning later on that says, hey, be careful that you don't live in sin. Because if you live in sin, something worse may happen to you. I'm thinking, what worse could happen than what just happened the last 38 years? He picked up the mat. He specifically, Jesus specifically told him to do something that broke their Sabbath rules. It didn't break God's law from the Old Testament, but it broke the Sabbath rules. And Jesus knew what he was doing, and I bet that guy knew what was coming too. And then I love what he did because Jesus said, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. So the guy did. Got up, picked up his mat, and he takes off. But do you notice where the guy headed? The guy left the pool of Bethesda where he was hanging out with all of the other sick people and all the shepherds and all the unclean people and he was so filled, I believe, with gratitude for what God had just done in his life, he got up, picked up his mat, still carrying his mat, and headed straight to the temple for worship. He went to worship. The festival was going on. The celebration of the power of God, of, of the great Jehovah God was taking place right then. And, and I'm going to it. He's healed me. He's given me new life. I, he grabs his mat. He doesn't go home. He doesn't take a bath. He doesn't clean up. He takes his mat. He goes to the temple. He's still carrying his mat when he shows up at the temple and the religious people start complaining about it. He went to worship. You want to... You want to see the correct response to, to God when he sets you free? Go worship. Go straight to where he is and begin to praise him and worship him and lift up his holy name. Don't worry about what other people are going to say. You focus on the Lord, the one who's healed you. And, and let's, let me just spend a little bit of time here. I know my time's getting short, but let me spend just a little bit of time here. Folks, I'm afraid there's far too many of us that... This, this, this passage has direct application to us. God is looking into your life and you're struggling with, with issues in your life. Maybe it's a physical ailment and you're not really wanting to get over. But maybe it's a spiritual ailment or, or, or an emotional issue. Maybe you're struggling with, with an addiction. Maybe you're struggling with pornography. Maybe you're struggling with something that's damaging your marriage. Maybe it's something that's, that, that you're struggling with that's eating away at your insides. And it's, it's, it's cutting into your relationship with the Lord. And it's, it's harming your spiritual life. And you're unhealthy spiritually because of it. 
He gives us the prescription here. Get up and go worship. Get up and run to Jesus. He will heal you. He'll set you free. Just like he did the woman in Luke chapter 13. Just like he did the man laying here at the, at the colonnades, at the pool. Jesus, is, he offers you healing. He offers you freedom from sin. If you'll just simply turn to him, obey him, and run toward him. I've seen far too many people, though, who were unwilling to follow the simple orders of Jesus. I watched it. There's a video out there on YouTube. It's, it's an old skit from the Bob Newhart show where he plays the part of a psychiatrist. And I've showed it here years ago in church as, a, as an illustration on a Sunday night. And this lady comes into him, and she has this fear of being in tight and closed places. Every time she gets an elevator, she goes in her closet, goes in a small bathroom. She, she has this image of being uh, locked in a box. Uh, and, and she just freaks out about it. So she comes to him, and she's trying to get help from the psychiatrist. And, and he says, all right. After a, a lot of discussion, he says, I've got two words for you. And th these will set you free. And she said, do I need to write it down? He said, it's just two words. <laughs> you can remember two words. And, and she says, okay, okay. He looked at her, and he said, stop it. She said, what are you talking about? That? He said, stop it. Just stop it. And she's like, well, I, that, that's, I just can't do that. That's just too easy. I, I've just got this fear, and you just don't understand it. And he says, stop it. We're not listening to that. Stop it. I wonder how often we come to God with our sin. And we know that what we're doing is wrong. And he looks at us, and he says, stop it. And we, oh, no, it's just too hard, God. I just can't stop it. Do, do you notice how simple the command was? Get up. That was the most difficult thing. That man had been laying there 38 years. God said, get up, and he got up. Is God looking in your life today, and he sees the sin in your life that you know is wrong? And he's looking at you, and he's saying, stop it. Eventually, the lady just, she had to have more. She couldn't get over it. She finally uh, looks at Newhart and says, don't you have something else? He goes, okay, I've got something. He says, it's 10 words now. And she said, okay. He said, well, you better get out your pad and write these down because it's 10 words. So she gets out her pad and he says, stop it, or I'm locking you in the box. <laughs> I know what Jesus said. Get up, pick up your mat, go your way, and sin no more. Stop it. Because if you don't, you're going to end up in worse shape than you are now. Now, I understand that that's oversimplistic. There's... there's but if you truly want to leave your sin, if you truly want to find healing, you want to find new life, Christ is offering it to you today. He will heal you if you'll come to him and give him opportunity. It may require action. You know, one of the things that, that, that we do as a staff, uh, anytime that we're, we're counseling with young men and as a staff, we recognize that we live in a world where pornography is a huge Struggle. It is, it's on our iPads, our iPhones, it's on TV, it's piped into our homes, it, unlike anything that we've ever seen in history. Now, years ago when I was a kid, I'd have to go peek over the counter at 7-Eleven try to catch a glimpse of a magazine in the back. It's not like that anymore. It's everywhere. It's in our faces. So we made a decision that, that we, we have a, a, a blocking software, reporting software called Covenant Eyes, and we hold one another accountable because we understand that we've made a decision. We want freedom. 
We want to walk in obedience to the Lord. And, and if you've struggled with alcohol before, you probably need some men or women in your life that will hold you accountable and help you stay out of it. Because some of those addictive sins can draw you back in. But you first have to make the decision to stop it and turn to Jesus. And when you do that, he'll empower you to overcome the sin in a way that you could never do it on your own. The healing of this man is truly a, a great picture for us in all kinds of areas of life. First, you have to ask the question, do I want to be well? And then when he gives you the answer, will you accept his answer by faith and do it? This man had to make a decision. First, he believed that he could get up when Jesus said get up. And once he believed it, he did. He stood up. Do you believe that Jesus can heal you? Do you believe that he can heal you of your emotional struggles? Do you believe that he can heal you of your sin? Do you believe that he can heal you? If the answer is yes, then obey him and you'll find freedom and you'll find new life. Hey folks, this is Pastor Dennis Hester, and I want to thank you for joining First Baptist Watauga through our podcast and hearing the message today. My prayer is that you were encouraged and uplifted by the preaching and teaching of God's Word. Our goal here is to equip you in your faith and to encourage you as you worship the Lord and seek to serve Him. If you have a question or you have a decision that you'd like to make, I'd encourage you to reach out to us through our website at fbcwatauga.org or simply call the church office. You can find that number or our email addresses there on that website as well. And by doing that, uh, we'd be glad to hear from you and we'd be encouraged about hearing what God's doing in your life. So God bless you and have a great day.